Well, folks, a very uh, lovely day. As you can see here, a podcast with a difference. We're trying a new vibe today, open air. My name is David Meredith, and I'm a host of our Generation podcast, a podcast that looks at mission and ministry largely from a Scottish perspective, but not necessarily. Uh, and my guest today is the Reverend Thomas Penman. Uh, Thomas, welcome. Thank you very much, David. It's good to be with you. It's great to have you here today. Would you be able to sit outdoors where you are today? Um, not today. It'll be a wee bit too windy. Um, so with that, I'm on South Uist and Benbecula. I'm the minister of South Uist and Benbecula Free Church up in the Western Isles. Okay, so some of our folks will know you, some wouldn't. Can you tell you know, folk where uh, South Uist and Benbecula are? Give us a bit of geographical context. Okay, so just off the west coast of Scotland, uh, if you go west from Skye, you'll run into Benbecula and South Uist. Um, if you think of where Lewis and Harris is, it's the bottom half of that chain of islands all the way to Dan Bar. If you keep going west after Uist, you'll hit either Greenland or the US, depending on your angle. <laughs> so with the last stop west. Yeah. So from Uig and Sky is a ferry journey of what, just under two hours, is that correct? Just under two hours, or if you're feeling really adventurous, you can go from Oban, and that'll take you six hours. Okay, have you ever done the Oban trip? I have indeed, yep. Yep, which prepare? Oh, the Uig one, definitely. Um, it's a nicer drive, and uh, you've got less chance of your daughter being ill on you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So you are the Free Church Minister at South Uist and Benbecula. When you were 16 years of age and someone said, Thomas, one day you're going to be the Free Church of Scotland Minister in South Uist and Benbecula, what would you have said? I would have said, uh, where's that? I would have said, what's a Free Church? And I have no interest whatsoever in Christianity. In fact, when I'm 16, I was anti, quite anti-Christian. Um, I was quite opposed to it. I didn't feel that Christianity was for uh, people like myself. Um, I'm, I was quite left-wing. I was politically active. My, my view of evangelical Christianity <clears throat> at 16 was that it was a political movement, not nothing really to do with spirituality. So the U.S. president was an evangelical Christian. And uh, so it was really more about your choice of political party than it was anything to do with, well, giving your life over to it. And my view at 16 was very simple. I, if I disagreed with the then politics of the United States, therefore I then disagreed with evangelical Christianity. And it's been a, a long process from there to learn that there is more to Christianity than politics, in fact. Much more. It's a little bit about, you know, our Muslim friends, you know, when you mention Christianity, they just think of the West, Western culture. Mm. So I guess, you know, at your young age, being politically active, when you thought of evangelicals, you just thought of the religious right in the US and the fundamentalism and that sort of thing. Absolutely. Okay, so, I mean, in today's mission terms, your demographic would be, and profile, would have been one of the hardest to reach thoroughly secular, politically motivated, anti-evangelical. What made the difference? Well, a couple of things made a difference. One of them was friendship. Uh, I had a friend at high school who became a Christian, and they emailed me, and I remember getting an email about from them about Jesus, and I said to them, 
why, what have you done? You know, have you gone mad? Why are you sending me this email? And they explained, oh, no, no, but, you know, I went on the summer camp and it was really good. And at that point, I kind of decided, well, I couldn't be anti-Christian if my friend was Christian. You know, whatever else I might think about it, uh, it seemed quite different. And they shared to me actually a CD with some preaching on. And I wouldn't say that is what converted me, but at least it opened the door to the idea of not all of these people are the same. There are differences and some of them actually have a more positive message. Um, There's some other bits about my background as well, which may be worth just mentioning. So um, I was outed when I was in high school um, as being from an LGBTQ background. And that obviously was another factor in my view of Christianity. When you say outed, um, was, that, was that traumatic? Was that against your will or were you quite positive about it? Yeah, no, it was against my will um, because it was one of those, well, you know, today there's a great encouragement to come out if you, you know, uh, if you're attracted to people of the same gender or the same sex. Um, but it, I did that stupid thing that sometimes happens when you're a kid or a teenager where, you know, somebody says, you can trust me, you know, with your deepest, darkest secret and you go, of course, and then within two weeks, it's around the entire school. So that's how it happened to me. And um, and I got flack for that, um, a lot of flack. But I remember when I was leaving school, uh, my yearbook was altered. So in your final year, you had a little profile about yourself in every yearbook, uh, sorry, you know, uh, from every school leave of that year in the yearbook. Mine was altered to say, quite obscene things actually to say that you know I wanted to prey on children and that I wanted to be assaulted in a prison shower and just horrible things and I went to speak to the teacher involved and they laughed they thought that was a funny thing you know that had happened and I don't know if you've ever had that experience of going to somebody in a position of power looking for a response and not getting it um, but at the same time I had uh, friends who were Christians but as far as I was concerned Christianity was this political movement it was against me but my friend became a Christian so I had to then say well look I can't be anti-Christian and then I went off to university and it just so happened the guy next door to me in my halls of residence was a Christian. And we would stay up talking and he was really friendly and we would talk about the gospel. Uh, we'd talk about uh, Christianity. And he eventually said, Tom, do you want to do something to investigate this a little bit more? You seem like you have lots of questions. And I said, well, yeah, sure. Why not? You know, what's the harm? We did a little course called Investigating Christian Belief with a group called The Navigators. And from that, I became convinced that the resurrection was an actual event in history. No, no, Jesus was real, he lived, he died, and he rose again on the third day. And when I mentioned that to a friend of mine at the seminary uh, about the fact that, sorry, not the seminary, sorry, the university that I believed in the resurrection, they said, well, you should be going to a church then. <laughs> <laughs> you should be going to think. And I went to church, uh, started going there fairly regularly, and that's when I was baptised. Um, but I'll be honest with you, I, I don't consider that to be my actual conversion of becoming a Christian because there was a big gap between what I would call kind of my Sunday attendance and the rest of my life. So I kind of, I believed that there was... Jesus and they died and he rose again but it didn't make any impact on how I lived really I was still doing all the stereotypical student stuff still going around and getting drunk um I was being very politically involved still and by the time I left university I'd stopped attending church 
And I moved up to Scotland uh, to work with a Marxist group. And that's how I came up to Scotland. Um, and uh, I was based, and I came up to live in Dundee. And then I spent a year working with a Marxist organization um, with people in that. Uh, but that came to an end. I went to work in a call center. Uh, and I just, you know, because <laughs> what else are you going to do? You know, you've got, you've got a CV, which reads university, Marxist revolutionary. You know, there aren't a lot of, Good job. Not the openings for Marxist revolutionaries these days. No, there aren't. They don't pay no. well either. Yeah. Exactly. So I went. Um, I went to a call center, and when I was at the call center, it was actually a place of many different faiths. There are quite a few Indian students there who were Hindu, some Muslim guys, a lot of atheists, um, and we got talking, and eventually it occurred to me that. I should actually be going back to church. And I can't explain what it was. Just something happened inside me that made me think I should go back. So I started to go back to, so I looked for a church. I found one I went to, it was fine. But then one, and, and a whole load of other things, which if you don't mind, I'll, I'll just kind of gloss over <laughs> for the sake of time uh, today. But Easter came and there was a big event in Dundee called Dundee for Christ, which was uh an event in this in the town hall, in the cared hall of Dundee. There was a guest speaker, and he was preaching on uh, on the gospel from the book of Romans, and the very fact that while we were still enemies, God showed His love for us in this way that He sent His Son Jesus to die for us. And I, I can't I can't explain the experience as I listened to that, and I listened to the message of the grace of God. I knew at that point that is actually what I trusted in and that was true. And um, and I went home and I found the talk by that speaker and a couple of others by him on grace. And I remember that every time that week that I was aware of my sin, I'd listen to it again. So I must have listened to that same sermon <laughs> about 20 times in the first week, just this is true and it's good and I trust in it. And uh, so that's, what, that's when I count as becoming a Christian. But it was, it was a long process over time. Did you find it, I mean, difficult? Obviously, you know, one of the things about, you know, being a Christian is it's a call to repentance and, yes. you know, your LGBT lifestyle, your elements of your Marxist philosophy were antithetical to, you know, a Christian worldview. So was repentance immediate or, you know, did it take a while and did you miss your old life? So repentance took a while. You know, it was, again, that was another slow process. I think one of the things the Lord does very graciously with us is that sometimes he gives people, a, a, you know, a Damascus Road experience where it's very sudden and it changes. And then for some of us, he gradually changes things in our lives over time. And he, he takes one part out and he changes it and he works on it in that way. Um, so there were a few things which changed. Um, you know, I was aware before um before before that easter event that i i wasn't really living up to the standards which were in the bible you know they they weren't there i was uh, sleeping around with people and drinking too much and i, I remember at one point actually praying uh, a prayer which augustine allegedly prayed a very famous one which is lord make me celibate but not yet and it was that feeling of, I know what the demands are, but I'm not ready yet. I can't 
get myself to that position yet. Um, so I, but I, but I continue to pray. And as I say, the Lord sort of drew those things out. I mean, there are other things as well. Um, as you say, Marxist philosophy is materialistic, you know, dialectical materialism. It is entirely materialistic and therefore there is no room for spirituality within Marxism. And therefore that was a very clear change, you know, and then there are Christians who will be left-wing and Christians who will be right-wing and Christians from across the political spectrum. But that particular philosophy is obviously completely incompatible with Christianity as a philosophy and as a system of thought. Um, one of the events that happened that kind of drew me further away from that was the fact that after I became a Christian, uh, the Marxist meetings were on a Tuesday night. And there happened to be a Christian meeting on a Tuesday night that I wanted to go to as well. And that became kind of the crunch moment when I had to sort of decide, well, which one are you going to commit to going forward? You know, these two things clash. They're on the same night. And so obviously I, I went to the Christian meeting, you know, and then that drew me further away as well. Um, so, but I would say that was, a, that was a process over time. Yeah, I guess, I mean, there's a similarity in one sense with, you know, you've got dialectical materialism, you know, um, Hegel's thing of a thesis and uh, antithesis and everything working out. Boy, um, I guess what you can connect is that a Marxist would say that there is a pattern in history. Yes. Uh, we would talk about providence, wouldn't we? We would just talk about a different cause. So... Would you say that there's a connection there between a Marxist view of history and a Christian view of providence? Um, I, I think, yeah. So I, I think there there could be a connection there, uh, but the connection would be that both view both view that history has a point and has a progress through it. Now, as Christians, we're maybe we are very cautious about talking about progress because we don't want to say it's, it's a single straight line. You know, things can progress and they can regress, but we know there is an end point to creation. You know, even before the fall, before there was sin in the world, the creation itself still had a purpose and it had an end point of glory. And we're told of the new creation in scripture. And if I was to compare the two, what I would say the link is, is that, both believe there is a renewal of humanity and creation as a whole, really, to come. The Marxist says that is to come through the revolution of the working class and the proletariat. We say it is to come about because of the return of Christ and the power of God. And therefore, where do you put your trust? Is it in a future revolution or is it in Jesus Christ and the Lord? Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. Um, so, I mean, there's so many strands there, and you've been really candid about that, the Marxist thing. Well, what if, I mean, someone asked me, in fact, Sunday night, and I was preaching in a church uh, in London, and, and a young person uh, there really interested in the LGBTQ plus um, issues. The question was really simple. Um, why is it wrong? What why is it wrong? My young friend and... In London, why is it wrong? Well, what's the fuss? What's the fuss? Well, so I think we have to go back a step, if you don't mind, David, and say, what is the Christian message and what is the gospel? And 
one of the problems that we have at the minute is there's a misunderstanding of what the gospel is, where we say, where people hear, and maybe they've been told this in the past, that the gospel is this, basically. You're going to hell, and that's really bad. You want to go to heaven, because that's really good. Therefore, trust in Jesus Christ and be saved. And that there's a lot of truth to that, so please don't panic that I'm about to say that isn't true. Carry on. Right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, there's a lot of truth to that. But but what I would say, what's missing from that is the person whom you're being saved for, you know, uh, and the reason you're being saved and the reason for that matter that human beings get judged, which is, what is the problem? Well, the problem isn't that God is just angry and he needs to take out his anger on someone else. The problem is that human beings have rebelled against God and are sinful. And the problem isn't just that you're going to hell as if that was a, a natural process, but the problem is the fact that you're being judged by God and going to hell. And Jesus isn't your ticket into heaven as if heaven was a good place to go because it's Alton Towers on steroids, you know, or the new creation is everything you ever dreamt of. Heaven is worth going to because that is the place where you get to be with your Lord, to be with God who loves for you and cares for you, uh, the, the psalmist will sometimes say how they how they want to gaze upon the Lord and see his infinite beauty. And the new creation is so good because Christ is at the center of that new creation. You know, there is no need for a sun there because the glory of God shines out in it. And that's what makes that new creation so especially good. Not just that there is no pain, but the Lord is there with his people again. And so the gospel it's not just that Jesus is your ticket to heaven. The point is that the Lord has saved you for himself. And he's brought you back in. And the New Testament uses the language of adoption, that we are adopted as children of God into the family of God, which is just amazing um, to think about that even just for a moment. And so it's not, and therefore when you are saved, it's not just simply, well, I'm going to heaven now, so does it matter what I do with the rest of my life? No, you've been saved into a relationship with God, and therefore that changes your priorities. Therefore, the things you live for and the things you're prepared to do, the things you're prepared to give up, are all based around the fact that you're now loving and serving your heavenly Father, and you're in a relationship with him. And the other thing that that means as well is that if you've been adopted into the family of God, you have a new identity. You know, the New Testament says the old has gone, the new has come. It says you are a new creation. Uh, at one point in Peter's epistle, it says that we are a holy priesthood. You know, as Christians, I don't know how often we think of ourselves in that way. You know, how often would you say, what did you do this weekend? Well, on Sunday morning, I went to a meeting of the holy priesthood. You know, we probably wouldn't say that that often. But that's what you are. So you're given a new identity. And if my identity is in Christ, then I need to check my own feelings. I need to check my own actions and think, well, how much do my feelings and my actions actually conform to that new identity that I have in Christ? And that's a lifelong process. You know, the Lord is at work within us. He's sanctifying us. He's, he's shaping us to be more like Christ. So, so with all that preamble, <laughs> Let me then go back to your original question and say, what's wrong? Well, the question that I would have for anybody is, as you come to Christ, does your lifestyle and the things that you want to do 
the things that you believe, do they measure up with the truth that Christ has revealed and the way that Christ himself is, sorry, the way in which the Lord himself is making us more Christ-like. And anything which doesn't fit or conform to that pattern um, is something that you have to be prepared to, to give up. Does that help? It's absolutely clear, yeah. And again, thank you for, for being candid. Um, just moving on, I mean, we could talk on that one subject forever, but yeah. you know, as we say, your identity wasn't Marxist or LGBT. Now, your identity is bigger than that. Yeah, absolutely, um, yes. So here you are, you're a minister in South Uist and Benbecula. I remember talking to you really about a year before you were ordained and we were looking at various options and places that you may or may not go. I have to say, I didn't think for a moment that you would end up in the Hebrides. And yet, looking at it, it seems such a great fit. Can you tell me a little bit about the story of how you ended up uh, there in the Hebrides and how the culture in, in which you're ministering just now differs to that in which you were raised? Sure. So, yeah, people might be able to tell by my subtle accent that I'm not from the Western Isles originally. Um, it's not a working class proletariat accent either. <laughs> well, no, it's not in any accent. That's kind of the problem. Um, but one of the things... So just to go back to the question, when I came into the Free Church, um, my, my family background is English, you know, um, and I remember my mum talking to my mum and saying, oh, I've joined the Free Church, I'm going to ministry in the Free Church, and she got kind of quite excited because in England, a Free Church is an independent evangelical church. And I explained to her, no, no, it's a, it's a Scottish Presbyterian church. And there's a bit of stereotypes, shall we say, around Scottish Presbyterians. And they were like, oh. And then my mum said, but don't, if you go to them, you could end up anywhere. They'll probably send you off to the Outer Hebrides or somewhere. And I said, mum, that's so stereotypical, mum. You know, you can't have that kind of prejudice against them. Well, you know, I owe her an apology, you know, (laughs) after that. So what brought me out here? Um, you're right. When I was at seminary and I was studying, um, my thought was somewhere more urban. My wife is from Glasgow. She's from a working class Glasgow background. That's, you know, urban environments where she feels most settled, most at home. When I was coming into ministry, as I said, I was in Dundee. I was in Perth. I was in Kakodi. You know, um, those some of those places are much more urban than others, but they're all quite urban. Um, what brought me to South Uist in the end was, and Ben Becula, was, was a feeling of a call here. I came out here to preach a few times. Uh, and really, I can't put it better than that, I'm afraid. It, it did just feel like a call. I, I had one plan and the Lord had a different one. <laughs> and yeah. so here I am. And, you know, my background is not Western Isles. I'm not, there's a lot of things I've had to adapt to. When I uh, first came up here, you know, I didn't speak a word of Gaelic, you know. Now I speak three words of Gaelic, but I'm learning. In fact, um, I, I applied for a beginner's Gaelic course on South Uist, and I got turned down because I didn't meet the minimum requirements for the beginner's course. So I, I'm learning it very, very slowly. But one of the things, though, that you need to expect, I think, when you come into an environment which is not your natural culture. It's not the one that you grew up with and it's not one that you're always used to. I, I think there's there's 
two things you really need to keep in mind. One of them is attitude and the other one is practicality. So in terms of attitude, you have to come in with a respect and a humility for the culture that you're going into. And that respect means, for example, you know, accepting the fact that Gaelic is the first language of many people in South Uist and that they'll have a different way of life to what you're used to and a different way of thinking about things maybe. And then as a, and your humility, as you respect that, you're open to learning. Now, I went to a seminary before I became a minister, which I think is right. I wanted to learn my doctrine and my theology really well. I want to get as much experience as possible. But there's still a humility when you arrive somewhere new to be able to speak to people locally and to speak, especially to members of your own church and say, okay, how is this done here? How would this be received here if I spoke in this way or we did this event or whatever it might be? Do you think that would work? Uh, an openness to listening to any any voice you can, when you can. Um, and really kind of a second education <laughs> in, in the life of Uist and Benbecula. Um, and then, and, and as part of that, you know, again, avoiding stereotypes, avoiding the idea that, that this is a monolithic place, you know, and therefore, you know, if I learn from this family, I can apply that to everyone. No, everybody is different. Um, the second part of that is the practicalities. You know, you have to adjust to different practicalities of living in a rural area. Now, we're in an island rural area as well, and therefore, there are certain things there that you have to get used to. So last year we had our second child who, and we had to go up to Stornoway to have her born. But then, you know, it's an hour or more down to the south of Harris and then across on the ferry and then North U.S. just to get home again with the baby. So if somebody in my congregation is ill and they have to even go for minor surgery up to Stornoway, I can't physically visit them unless I take a day off, you know, an entire day off to travel up and see them and come back down again. Um, you get used to the idea of the ferries and things, you know, arrive when they do. Uh, the ferries are currently in a bit of a crisis mode. Everybody on the island's complaining about them. But again, I was on the mainland with my family on holiday and we got a text the the, the Friday before we were due to come back saying from Calmac, well, I'm sorry, we've cancelled your ferry. And when I called them up, I said, oh, are you, you going to change it? And said, oh, no, we're just giving refunds. And I had to say, well, but I live on the island. You know, I, if I can't get back again, I'm really stuck. And then eventually sorted it. But it's just things like that. You know, I've never been anywhere where if I left, I wasn't 100% sure when I'd be able to return. Um, so it's just learning those practicalities of life as well, getting used to distances and things like that. But the one thing I would say, oh, sorry, David, do you want to come in there? Yeah, no, um, um, so, but the one thing I would say with that as well is that in terms of the gospel, uh, the great good news is, that, is the fact that the gospel doesn't change. And so even though I'm in a different context, in a different environment, a different culture, the gospel is the same. So it's not as if I suddenly have to start with a new Bible and I have to start with a new message. I have to think very carefully sometimes about how I communicate that message, but I don't have to change it. And I think that is a wonderful encouragement, whichever context you're in. 
Yeah. If I was being really cheeky, I would say Kamarak and Gallagher to Ruit, but uh, maybe that's for maybe that's for the, the next podcast we do next <laughs> year's time. Um, what, what would you say the differences are in terms of ministry uh, in a rural context and in, a, in an urban context? What I'm trying to get at are the, the challenges that you're, you're facing there. I get, by, by the way, before you answer, I thought it was great when you said that you know the islands are not homogeneous. You know, your name is Penman, it's not McDonald, McKinnon, Nicholson. McLeod, uh, there will be many people in South Youth and Rebecca with a lowland English you know, background. Uh, they're called white setters as a kind of pejorative term, but um, that, that's what used. So just thanks for, for pointing that, the, the variety of the people and also the differences. Well, I mean, just on that last point, the differences, I would even say there's differences even between the Isles of the Western Isles. You know, you can't assume that what you see in Lewis is going to be the same as what you'd see in Benbecula or South Uist, for example. And even between Benbecula and South Uist, there are differences. Um, in terms of the challenges, one of the big ones uh, is distance. You know, uh, the place where we have our morning services is a 40-minute drive from where the manse is and the place we have our afternoon service is a 25, 20, 25 minute drive from where we have the manse. Um, and people are very spread out. And one of the things that is, I think, unique about South Uist is that there isn't a central hub in the same way. That there are, there are villages, small villages, but it's also true to say that with the crofting and the housing, it's, it's very spread out. So it's not like you can just go to one location and that's where you'll catch everybody. You know, uh, The children come to school by bus from across Uist and Benbecula, and some of them will be traveling for you know a long time on the bus, but it's not like you can just take your children to the school gate <laughs> and you'll see all the parents because a lot of the children might well be going home by a bus and so on. Uh, now, there are places you can catch people. We, we've been very blessed that... Uh, before lockdown, I was able to take some school assemblies. We have a very good relationship with a care home in South Uist, which we can go in and visit. But, but as I say, it, it, one of the things about rural ministry, or at least where we are, is that there isn't a central place where everybody kind of gathers and you can catch everybody at once. Um, and another challenge I'd say about the rural area is the fact, well, it's a, this is a Christian challenge maybe, which is we're very blessed to have a whole lot of uh, Christian literature coming out about urban work and we're very blessed in that way and I think it's good it's good literature it's very helpful we're missing in evangelical circles and reform circles the books on rural life and rural ministry and therefore there isn't the same uh, material in terms of helping people get a handle on it or sharing those experiences and maybe that's something that we need to think about for the future um, and then I'd say a third challenge as well is that not just with the distance, but because people are quite distant from each other, sometimes people can be quite private. So you have what I think is sometimes a paradox of people know everything that's happening. So people know what you're buying in the, in the co-op, you know, uh, and they see what you're doing. And therefore you have to accept that, you know, you do anything, it's known, you know. But at the same time, people, because they're so spread out, can be still, can be inside their homes a lot. And especially because of lockdown over the last year, 
you don't necessarily see people just out and about. Um, and you have to make that extra effort if you're actually going to see people. You can't just be in a town centre <laughs> and just happen to see people as they go past. So I think those are some of the challenges. Um, one of the, uh, no, sorry, it is a fourth challenge. It's because of that, uh, because of the fact that people are spread out and because on the West Niles and South US and Benbecula, you're, you are geographically quite remote from other areas. It, it does mean that you you don't always meet up with other ministers as much or you don't always have as much contact. One of the things I'm really glad about is the fact that I have a presbytery on the West Niles, which is very supportive of the work in South Uist. I have other ministers who will be praying for me and contact me, and that's great. I'm really glad for the blessing of Zoom, <laughs> which makes a huge difference, and the phone calls. Um, but, you know, if you're going away somewhere or you need to cover, then that's that's a major effort. You know, you need to really organize that. You can't just say to somebody else in this, you know, in your town, oh, would you mind covering for me a week on Sunday? No, that's a, you know, that's a real planning out sort of thing. So it's all those kinds of challenges which kind of come together. So you've been there, what, almost three years now, is that correct? No, I've been here 18 months. 18 months, okay. Yes. Wow. <laughs> uh, so what have you, two, two parts, what have you enjoyed most and what have you enjoyed least? Um, what have I enjoyed the most? Uh, the people. I mean, I was going to say, I was about to give there the very kind of stereotypical answer of working for the Lord, which is a great blessing in and of itself, and it does. And when you see the fruit of ministry starting to emerge and you sort of see people who are growing in their faith, that's a huge encouragement. But the people, I think, have been great. The congregation have been very welcoming. And I've been bowled over at times by just the the help and the love which has been shown to me and my family by members of the congregation and even by the members of the community. So that, that has been really encouraging and really good. The thing I, I enjoy the least, uh, from a ministry point of view, I think like all ministers, paperwork, you know. If, yeah, <laughs> you the forms and the mission board sent you to fill yeah, in. Yeah, exactly. All this work from generation. No, um, <laughs> all that kind of thing. You're still to fill in your annual congregational survey, but carry on. Are we? No, I think we've done that. Okay. We've done that, actually. But anyway, um, but yeah, you know, nobody goes into ministry because they want to do paperwork. You know, that's an that's just a universal truth. Um, one thing I would say, one thing is also um, that maybe you don't enjoy quite as much of there. I, I, I don't know, don't enjoy is the right word, but you just have to adjust to the fact that, you know, you can have days of brilliant sunshine like we had yesterday. And then you'll have days when in the winter when you know a, a section of your congregation is missing just because the weather is phys too wild for them to physically be able to get to church you know and i don't mind a blustery day you know that's absolutely fine but it's just again it's just that adjustment to those extremes where it can be very quick very you put in context for some of our listeners and viewers i mean some years ago there was a tragedy uh, in south Uist when a whole family Traveling a, a blustery day, we was swept off um, the causeway. So it's a very real issue. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's not just a blustery day; it's sometimes life and death. Sorry, carry on, Tom. No, no, absolutely, you're absolutely right. You know, um, I, I sometimes say to people that the South US and the Mecca is the only place I've lived where my car door snapped in the wind. Mm. You know, 
yeah. had to go get it repaired because I opened it in a gale and it caught it and snapped. Um, so I say you just have to be aware of those things. So you spoke about challenges there and things you've enjoyed, things you haven't. Let's just talk about one or two components of, of ministry. Um, obviously, preaching is, is important. You're a, you're a very articulate person. You've got a really good worldview. You're a good communicator. Tell us what you think are the elements of, of good preaching. So I think for good preaching, you need to know the text that you're preaching very well. You need to study it. But I would also say you need to go beyond study to meditate on it. So if you can, during the week beforehand, don't just simply study it with commentaries and read it, but get it into your brain and your mind and then be able to think about it throughout the whole week, think how it applies. So knowing the text well that you're going to preach or the doctrine that you're going to preach, whatever the topic is, whatever you're doing. Know your, know that well. Know the people you're preaching to well so that you know, first of all, what they already know on this topic or this, or this text, and also where the pressure points are. So I, I mentioned earlier about, you know, talking to people, you know, would, would how this would go down or that would go down. But I think that one of the elements of preaching is that you have to know your people well enough that you know what are you going to struggle with? What's going to be a real challenge to them? And what are they struggling with in their day-to-day life as well that the word speaks to and helps them with? And then from that, you can then draw out your application. And, and one of the things I would say about what I would consider to be good preaching is it's not the same everywhere. Mm. I know that sounds like a strange thing to say because we have maybe have on our mind a model of what good preaching is, but I, I think it would be remiss if I preached in the same way in South Uist, maybe, that I would do to um, a city centre congregation in Edinburgh because the people are different. Yeah. And again, it goes back to what I said earlier. The truth isn't different. You know, that doesn't change, but the people are different. They're facing different hardships. They've got... They've had different life experiences and therefore, uh, you know, your illustrations will be different. But those two elements together of, of knowing your, knowing the truth, knowing, knowing the text, studying it, knowing how and then knowing your people so you can communicate to them and apply it to their lives. So it's not just simply here's a lecture on something worthwhile, but actually, no, this is the way this changes how you live. This impacts what we do as a church. I, I think those two elements together are absolutely essential. That's really interesting. Um, thanks for that. Just a, a couple of things before we, we come into land. Um, obviously, you've been there 18 months. Most of that has been COVID. Um, do you think you're going to be the same coming out of COVID as you were going in? I guess you're back to in-person meetings um, just give us uh, some reflections on that. So I don't think we're going to be the same. I can already say that because there have been some people who are on the periphery before lockdown. And during lockdown, we do the online services. We have the online Bible studies, all that kind of thing. But even then, we had some people on the periphery who f- kind of floated away and we'll have to work hard to talk to them, bring them back. On the other hand, we've also been really encouraged. We had some people on the periphery who during lockdown 
came into the centre, you know, became much more active, much more committed. And therefore, there's been a change in that. And one of the surprises of ministry is that the people you think when you first arrive at a church and think, these are the guys who are really going to be the ones who, you know, whatever in the future. And these people on the outside, sometimes it turns out to be the opposite way around from what you expect. You know, the, the people who you think, oh, they're, they're on the outskirts, actually turn out to be the ones who are really good and strong. And the people who you think are going to be really great turn out to be not quite as committed. Um, I think in terms of our changes as well, there has to be some changes. Uh, one of the things that happened when we had online Bible studies during lockdown is that we had people from other islands joining us. So we had a couple from Barra, which just to help people, it is, is the two islands down from South Uist. It's another ferry ride away. So they can't come regularly to our services but they join us regularly for the online Bible study, which is a good encouragement to us and a good help. But we, um, so thinking about that online component, not because I want to be entirely online, but I do want people who are tuning in or when the weather's bad, whenever, you know, when the, and people can't visit, to have that. So those are components which we will probably keep in some form. You know, our live stream is audio only because, the broadband isn't always the best, depending on what's happening. It seems to go off every time somebody next door watches Netflix. Um, but we have audio only. But we'll probably we'll keep elements like that. Um, I also think that as we go back, we will go back. We're going back smaller than we were. People are slowly coming back to church, um, even with the encouragements. Some people are scared to come to church um, because of the risk of because they think there's a risk involved. And other people don't want to come to church for as long as they have to wear a mask because for whatever reason, they find it very hard to be in public with a mask on. Um, so those kind of things are slowly going. I, I think the other thing that's happened with lockdown for us is that before lockdown, we were getting out into the community much more. So I mentioned earlier about the school assemblies. We had events at the church with like teen coffee things. We had mums and toddlers groups. We need to restart those things when we can do, um, you know, as we can do. And when it's safe, for example, if we need to go back into the care home, I'd love to do so and to minister there and to preach there again. Same with the schools and school assemblies. But there is also, there's almost a feeling that we'll be starting from scratch again in some of those areas as well, that actually a year out means that you lose the momentum that you've had and you have to just regain that again. I also think that there'll be a need for us as we go back to have an emphasis on growing the church community in terms of its its own spiritual strength at the same time as we look outward. So there really needs to I think to be a we need to go back with a view of strengthening the church. We're a revitalization projects. So we're, we're doing that anyway, but uh, to really strengthen those bonds and those commitments to one another, even as we do evangelism. Okay, we're winding up now, so we will wind up with one of those almost desert island disc type uh, questions. Not, not quite. You know, if you're the Bible and Shakespeare, what other book? But I'm interested. What, what you're reading at the moment, and is it any good? So, um, are they any good? Are they any good? Yeah. So I'm currently um, have got three books on the go, but that's not because I'm particularly intelligent or anything. That's just uh, because I 
leave one book in one room and go pick up another one. Um, but I'm currently just starting Carl Truman's new book on the rise and triumph of the modern self. And you asked me if it's good. Well, I'm only starting it. It seems very good. And it seems like it'll be very helpful. I've heard it's very good. And um, another one that I've been reading at the minute, I'm reading uh, Brian Croft, who some of you might know is a minister from the Southern United States. And, but he writes a lot on practical theology and uh, that. And I think he's, I think Brian Croft is excellent. You know, if it's got Brian Croft's name on it, it's worth reading. Even if you don't agree with every dot and comma, um, I think it's worth doing. And uh, I'm currently been reading um, a book on uh, Christian meditation, um, you know, called The Battle for the Mind, which again, I think is actually, again, I say that's very good. I think um, learning to meditate on scripture is one of those things which I've been quite slow of in the past and I'm learning now to do it much more deliberately and that's been really beneficial. Tom thank you uh, so much for for being with us today for giving us this 40-45 minutes. Thanks also to the viewers for this new studio that I've got here. It's a bit noisy with some traffic in the background, children, there's a school behind me but that's, <clears throat> I thought that's as ministry, we do things in the context of noise and interruptions. I think the search and rescue helicopter was over me for about five minutes. Um, I'm David Meredith. This is a Generation Podcast. We've been speaking to Tom Penman. Thank you so much for being uh, with us. And we hope to see you again at another podcast. Thank you. Thank you.